Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mullinger Meets Canadians is brought to you by Nova Scotia Business Incorporated. Hello, I'm stand-up comedian James Mullinger and the co-founder of Edit Magazine. This is Mullinger Meets Canadians, the podcast where we meet Canadians who are making waves on the world stage. Emily Higgins is a marine biologist and science communicator who has dedicated her academic career and indeed her life to evaluating the conservation success of artificial reefs. She's the director of Ocean Science and for more than half a decade has been leading international research teams and consulting on best practices for the use of artificial reefs in marine restoration projects in tropical and temperate regions. She grew up between New Brunswick and Nova Scotia and loves the ocean. She started out on one path in life but found that it didn't align with her social or moral compass. So switched direction, did extra schooling, and has co-founded this incredible and potentially globally impactful company and moved back to Nova Scotia to really establish it. She's a marine biologist, conservationist, researcher, science communicator, diver, educator, coral reef ecologist and environmental storyteller. We can all learn a lot from Emily Higgins, so let's dive in. Excuse the pun. Emily, it's so lovely to meet you. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. I know how extremely busy you are with so many things, so we really appreciate you taking the time. And I think the the first thing I really want to ask is, is that you're first and foremost a marine biologist, but there is just so much to what you do, a conservationist, researcher, science communicator, diver, educator, ecologist, um, storyteller. How do you describe yourself when <laughs> you meet people and they ask what you do? Yeah, that is a laundry list. I think the term that's sort of encapsulates it all as scientific storyteller. Right. And it's a new term for me. If you'd asked me when I was a child what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would have thought storyteller really wasn't on the menu. <laughs> but it turns out that the way that we communicate and the way that we tell stories, whether that be through an academic article or a podcast, you know, or <laughs> a movie, we really do love hearing stories and that's how we retain information and and I like to bring that approach to both the science that I do and the communications that we do when we're talking about how important it is to connect with the natural world and understand what it needs. Right. Beautifully put. And of course, the stories you tell are designed to make an impact, but also to essentially change the way people behave and view the world. How important is that to you to make sure that people learn about what you're doing and then change how they behave? Wonderful question. Um, it's it's one of those things that I think has been done very differently across generations. You know, there's some people that are very forward and loud about, you know, we need to change what we're doing. And I, and I fundamentally agree with that. We do need to change what we're doing. Um, but I think that there's so much environmental anxiety that's going on in the world nowadays. And I think that people have heard those foundational messages to the point where they're 
they're a little saturated and they don't maybe have as much impact as they could have had in previous years. Honestly, I think it's really been in the last three years that you've seen this sort of stark, overwhelmed audience, um, particularly with environmental issues. And so, you know, I think that communities protect ecosystems at a fundamental level, whether it's a global community or a local community. And to me, speaking to that community and having that community feel empowered to protect what ultimately supports them and feel proud about supporting it, I think those are the types of stories that create accountability. I think that polarizing (laughs) messages, while they are so, so important, and I think there is such a place for them, personally, and maybe this is me being from the Maritimes, you know, we don't, (laughs) we don't like to be too (laughs) abrasive. We don't like to be too spiky. Um, And so creating that sense of community around stewardship and creating hope is an approach that I, I like to take. And I think that there is a real space for that in the storytelling community, especially in the environmental realm. And so I think Jacques Cousteau had this his very famous quote, we protect what we love. And I think that's never been more true than it is now. And that's difficult for the marine realm because <laughs> how many people <laughs> live underwater? You know, how many other than <laughs> submarine captains and, and people that actually live underwater for a significant amount of time? Um, if you're not a diver, if you're maybe afraid of the ocean, it just doesn't feel like home to you, although it is home to so many important species. And so creating those immersive experiences, creating that sense of connection between land and water and bringing communities underwater. Um, I think that's where we need to start. And it does start with children, but there's such a place for the older generations to get re-inspired and re-excited about where they live. So I'm, I'm big on community pride and it's kind of a soft approach. It's not for everybody. Mm. But to me, I mean, that's what works for me, you know. Yeah. And that's absolutely fascinating that you've essentially taken, because it is something which, of course, we should be angry about. And of course, I mean, obviously you are angry about the things that are happening, but you've chosen this, as you rightly put it, incredibly kind of Maritimes way of inclusivity and promoting conversation rather than uh, kind of hectoring or kind of barking at people. I mean, that's a really, really beautiful thing. And what are the kind of positives that you've seen come out of this approach? I think you just see so many people come to the table with questions. I think when you're yelling at someone, they automatically think about how to yell back rather than sit back and listen. No one wants to listen when they're being yelled at. And of course, you know, like I say, I'm not trying to put down really forward active advocates who want to yell. And I think there really is a place for that because it's frustrating the situation we're in in the world today. But when you're going into a community and doing the restorative work that we do, I think the word restore is really key. And that healing starts with the community that starts with the people that are forming these conservation goals and the economies that rely on these resources so those values and principles need to be restored alongside and in tandem with the underwater world and so you you really do have people come to the table and and ask questions even if maybe fundamentally they were against uh, the things that you were talking about or didn't want to believe it you know I've, i've previous projects i've been on have actually roped in this wonderful mormon community And they said, you know, I voted for Trump and I believe in, you know, I don't think I believe in climate change, but you're a scientist. And I said, yes, yes, I am. (laughs) And they said, (laughs) okay. And they kind of, you know, lowered their voices and started to whisper. They said, can you explain to me 
what is happening and whether the world is really warming. <laughs> and I said, sure, yeah, let's have a conversation about it. You don't have to, you know, I'm not saying you have to believe everything I believe, but if you honestly are curious, like, let's talk about it. And that has actually changed minds far more than standing on a soapbox in my realm and in the work that I do anyway. That's incredible. I mean, in a nutshell, what would you say to someone, if you were talking to someone who is a kind of a, a far-right voter who traditionally doesn't support environmental measures or environmental movements, how would you explain to them, in a nutshell, the situation that we are in in the world? Yeah, I would first and foremost just encourage their curiosity. Just say, you know what, it's amazing you're asking these questions. So many people don't want to learn, and I think it's fascinating and wonderful that we all keep learning throughout our lives. So just providing that encouragement, and we should all want to learn. As soon as we stop learning and stop listening to each other, there's just no no productive <laughs> projects that we can do together. But then, you know, it really does get into a sense of understanding the way that science works. So I, I very rarely will jump into, okay, climate versus weather, and look at this trend, and <laughs> look at the frequency and severity of storms, which of course are all happening, um, yeah. and, and they need to be addressed and they're all linked to warming and pollution and, and coastal development, and, you know, all these all these things. But I, I usually start with sort of a fundamental, you know, science is the culmination of fact gathering over time. And yes, you have papers that come out that are limited, but they're limited for certain reasons, either the experiment didn't have enough replicates or or you were you built a model and you it was a predictive model. And so I usually start with you know, this is the way that scientific publications come out. And then if you look at a situation, a hot button topic like climate change, what we're really looking at is a culmination of facts that points to one overwhelming community voice in the academic world coming up and saying in nearly all the papers that we have, this is what's happening. And so it's it's that culmination that's so important there's always going to be outliers and and you can't hold those outliers up and say oh well i found a paper that said this one little spot of the world is actually cooling it's so much more complex than that it's these averages overall so it's it's really that sense of understanding math understanding science <laughs> having a good appreciation about how that scales up on a global level which it's so complex it's no wonder people are are confused you know having these massive global problems isolated to one paper or distilled in some way, it's no wonder people can't figure it out. Right. I like to just say, like, let's talk about the averages and the trends. They really do tell a story, coming back to that, overall that fundamentally points to this happening. And right. it's a difficult conversation because it is it is so complex. There's a million moving parts and there's a million things that scientists don't understand. And so it's very easy to point at those things that we don't understand yet and, and have that be a reason to tear down this whole system of science and, and knowledge accumulation. And I think fundamentally, if you understand how research papers come out and how they accumulate over time, it sort of takes away that mystery in a way. Yeah. And then if that person then said, what can they do? How could they change the way that they live to facilitate a situation where they can make a difference. What would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, by and large, 
I think that there are things we can really do on an individual level that contribute less single-use plastics, trying to cut your own emissions as much as possible or offset. If you do travel for a living, if you can purchase carbon offsets, you know, all those things are helpful. Mm. But we are individuals. And I think rising up as a community and supporting large movements, whether that's through volunteering time, volunteering donations to movements that are really doing either restorative work or lobbying work. And, and it's it's very difficult because fundamentally a lot of the political systems that uphold these environmental values don't agree with other people's uh, sociocultural values. And so, of course, right. you know, they may not change the way they vote, but maybe they'll get involved with local projects like, for instance, in, in the realm that I work in, supporting carbon offsets or supporting more sustainable practices in coastal development. And this could be as simple as amplifying voices of local community enterprises or local community projects, you know, getting involved on a local scale if you're not comfortable getting involved on a national or global scale. There's always things we can do. And you can pick and choose. You don't have to fundamentally change everything you do and change your political values or it doesn't necessarily suit you. But absolutely, there's a million a million ways to get involved, even if you're, you know, maybe a little bit more on the conservative end. <laughs> yeah. And for you personally, when did you discover your love for the water and indeed being underwater? <laughs> um, <laughs> I had a near drowning experience when I was about oh, wow. three. Uh, oh my goodness. It wasn't a lake. It wasn't in the ocean. So. And do you remember it? Like, is it an early memory or do you think it's a memory that's formed after the fact or? No, it was, it was really vivid actually. So so I grew up uh, in my early years in New Brunswick, and we were mm-hmm. cottaging on Grand Lake. My dad's mother had a cottage there at the time, and so I was learning how to swim. And I had these water wings on, you know, and I was three, and I was kind of splashing around, didn't really know what I was doing. And my mm-hmm. older brother, you know, he was five. He was swimming quite well, and the entire family was watching him and applauding how well he was doing. And, of course, being the younger sibling, I was jealous. And so I <laughs> threw off my water wings and said, look at me, and dove underwater. And my family went, ah! <laughs> oh, no. And I was fairly far away from them. So I just remember, you know, everything went silent, and I was calm, and I opened my eyes underwater, and I just remember seeing, like, these little freshwater shrimp and these these wonderful little plants. And I just started playing underwater. You know, I couldn't get back up. I was <laughs> stuck underwater. Um, and I just, I was completely calm. It was the most serene thing I had seen up until that point. And of course, my uncle fished me out by my ankle and I was, I was fine. But I just remember being completely fascinated that there was a world underneath this kind of mirror-like surface of the water. And, and that really stuck with me, although it, it took me, you know, I took a lot of deviations in my youth and certainly didn't set out to be a marine biologist or to work in ocean conservation. But I think that fundamentally that fascination started very, very young. That's incredible. I mean, I mean, what's a, uh, a kind of a, a life-changing moment and for something like that to happen at such a young age that in many ways has driven the whole course of your life I mean at what point was it kind of later then that you realized that a it was something which was going to not only be a passion but would also be your life career yeah you know I think my life sort of always came back to the water I grew up Mm. near the water and and always felt very relaxed near the water I I I first did a degree in in archaeology and anthropology Mm. and then started a master's in archaeology and, and felt kind of discontent at the time, you know, I was supposed to be looking at 
archaeobotanical remains in Ethiopia and Eritrea, which is one of the most impoverished regions in the world. And I, I just didn't feel a, a large sense of pride in what I was doing, going to a region that needs so much, so many other things, you know, and mm. digging up their culture history for my own career, writing a paper and then leaving just didn't sit well with me. Of course, there's very ethical ways of doing that type of work. But, I, you know, I was also quite young. I was 20 or 21 at the time. And so I decided to leave that master's program. And I took a bit of a sabbatical and I moved to Victoria, B.C. And, and I just sat by the sea and contemplated what the heck I was going to do with my life. And it was actually through sitting by the sea and going through the tide pools and kind of returning to the water that I found peace. And I really decided that I wanted to do something for climate change and for for communities that rely on these resources, uh, much like the community that I grew up in. You know, we have fishermen in the family that go way back and, you know, we've been so tied to the land for so long. And so I went back to school and I started a master's in marine bio, primarily looking at coral reefs. And uh, halfway through my master's, I had just published a paper on my sites, which were in the Red Sea. So I was overseas and uh, I returned to them about a year later for a conference and dove on my same sites that I just published on and they had been decimated by a disease and they were all gone. And I just remember thinking like, you know, my paper is out there. My paper exists mm -hmm. and, and these communities don't exist anymore. And, and academia just really didn't seem to keep up with the necessary pace. You know, as much as we are learning about these environments, they're disappearing faster than we can learn about them. And so that's really where the fundamental shift was to protecting ecosystems. So not just learning about them to, to have that knowledge and inform policy, but actually to do something active and, and do something restorative. And then shortly after my master's, I, I went back and went back to grad school and did a degree in environmental communication to really learn how to how to bring nature to everybody, how to create those connections with nature and, and get people excited and engaged about reconnecting with the natural world and feeling a sense of responsibility to protect it and live sustainably with nature. And and then, so here I am, you know, I was <laughs> contacted very shortly thereafter by uh, Melody Brenna. She's the CEO of IntelliReefs in the States and my co-founder of IntelliReefs Can. And uh, I mean, the rest is kind of, kind of history. It's, it's so inspiring. I mean, where exactly in New Brunswick was it that you grew up? Uh, my family is in Moncton. So we oh, grew lovely. up in and around Moncton, and I've spent loads of time in St. John. My brother played baseball for the province, and so if there is oh, a wow. baseball field or a hockey rink, you can bet I sat in it from the ages of three to <laughs> 17. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. I, I, I live just outside St. John, and my, my oldest son uh, plays baseball, so uh, I am now living that life too and, uh, and loving it. There you go. It's a good <laughs> life, you know, lots of time outside and... With other kids, it. it's a wonderful way to see the Maritimes, actually. For sure. And I mean, everything you've described about the water and the calming effect, it's interesting how it, there is definitely a lot to be said for the fact that anyone that is feeling stressed or down or struggling, being around water or looking at water, it, it has such a profoundly kind of calming effect, both mentally, emotionally, even physically. And I mean, I myself, you know, I left, you know, 
London, England, living in an extremely busy, frenetic city where I've never got a chance to kind of relax. And, and now the main incentive to come here was to have a house on the water, which is what I now have. And I, eight years in, just looking at it, calms me but mm-hmm. I, and I love the fact that that's what kind of has inspired your whole life but the fact that you wanted to get in there and essentially kind of live in the water and and experience that like so I know how great it feels to look at the water how do you feel when you dive and you get down and you see all of these incredible things mm. it's kind of all at once uh a sensory deprivation and sensory overload experience. So you have this sort of silence, this profound silence that presses in on your eardrums. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of where the relaxation starts. And then you're mesmerized by everything you see. You know, there's, there's almost no equivalent to submerging yourself and rolling around in a kelp forest or Mm -hmm. watching two crabs fight it out or playing with a, from a distance, you know, kind of playing with a lobster. It's, you feel like a fish, you know, you feel like you're, you're in that ecosystem, you're part of that ecosystem. And you're just kind of a passive particle floating around and and watching this world that is so alien from the world that we live in every day. And I'm sure, you know, maybe not everyone feels that way. But Mm -hmm. by and large, most of the people that I know that that have gone underwater, really do come out in sort of a dreamlike state. It shifts your your thinking in such a unique way mm. to be so removed from your everyday life. It's like going to outer space, you know, that right. there's almost no equivalent to it on Earth. You can walk through a forest and have sort of a similar effect. But for me, being in a place where these animals don't even, you know, they don't breathe air, you know, it's it's just mm. so unbelievably different. And I do think the pressure on you as you're diving, it's almost like a, you know, those those sensory blankets, those weighted blankets that yeah. calm people and dogs down. It's almost that kind of effect. You just get a little bit swaddled, <laughs> swaddled in the sea. <laughs> At least that's, yeah, that's what it is for me. Do you, you kind of feel like it must be tough if you don't go in for a while? Like, do you feel a kind of uh, start to get stressed if it's been a week or two and you haven't been underwater? Yes. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I've been living back and forth now um, between Toronto and the Maritimes for a little bit. Um, Obviously, starting the company in Halifax, I'll be there um, on a more permanent basis moving forward. But I do miss the sea when I'm in Toronto. The lakes are are beautiful. um, And I I do snorkel and, and dive in the lakes. But it's not quite the same. You know, there's not there's not those schools of fish swimming around you. There's not the same sort of energy from waves. Yeah. And I think that there's something about the salt air that's almost like a it feels almost like a vitamin. You know, it's it's uh, it's something that I I think if you grew up near the sea, it's something you feel like you need and you do feel deprived when you don't have it. This show is brought to you by Nova Scotia Business Incorporated. NSBI works towards a strong, thriving and globally competitive Nova Scotia through attracting worldwide investment to create new jobs across the province and working with companies in all communities to be more successful exporters. Visit NovaScotiaBusiness.com to learn more about doing business in Nova Scotia. I mean, all of those things that you've 
done and achieved. I mean, there's there's so many from credible speaking engagements to educating through film and video. And I know you've led an international research teams. I mean, what would you say are your career highlights? What are the things that stand out as the things you're kind of most proud of either A, doing, but also achieving? Public speaking for me is it's always scary. So anytime I am doing a public speaking engagement and it's I feel that engagement from the audience, people either laugh or nod or, you know, that always feels unbelievably fulfilling. And I've gotten a little bit, obviously, a little bit better at it as I've gotten older. But there's always that, you know, nausea right before you go on, go on stage or speak in front of a large crowd. Um, So kind of overcoming that has been personally very gratifying for me. But honestly, the most proud moment I've had, I think, really was seeing the benefits of the restoration project that we have down in the Caribbean, seeing the fish feeding off of the structures, aggregating around the structures, seeing the enhanced biodiversity, seeing the lack of disease on the structures, seeing it actually work. There's so many things that people try to do and they're thwarted by bleaching events or ocean acidification or (laughs) sedimentation coming from a development project down the road. And so to see something really work and the community respond, it feels like you're working in harmony with nature rather than imposing a new regime on nature, if you will. I think a lot of restorative work focuses on one species and it's kind of brute force. Okay, we're going to plant 700 trees and hopefully we'll have this many survive and, and we'll kind of recreate a forest, which has its benefits, absolutely. But the work that we really try and do is set up a healthy community from the microbe level up. And that requires very specific and well-researched technology to actually biomimic a natural and healthy substrate or seafloor mm-hmm. from the very start, from day one. It, it actually takes that short amount of time to cue the rest of the environment that, okay, this is a healthy place to live. You can come live here. And so that, you know, that has been unbelievably gratifying. And I see that really as the nod that what we're doing is working and that pushes us forward and that pushes us forward into our work in Canada. So we've, you know, we've been working down in the Caribbean and seen these amazing results. And now we are engaging in kelp restoration and oyster restoration off the coast of Nova Scotia. And we are very thrilled to have this technology translated from a tropical to a temperate environment. For me, it's like coming home as well, which is exciting for a lot of reasons. Yeah, I mean, that must be beautiful, given the kind of global nature of what you do. I mean, by its very nature, it's an international thing. But to be bringing everything you've kind of learned globally and be applying those techniques and that outlook to something local in Nova Scotia, describe that feeling and realisation. It's very warming, you know. It's, mm-hmm. It is something that so many communities around the world need, mm. but it has also instilled a huge sense of pride to see where I come from tackling ocean issues head on, tackling conservation and policy issues head on. Halifax itself is one of the most dense regions in the world for ocean academics, but that is also coupled with huge support from local policy and government, huge support from industry partners. And that really is the recipe for actually pushing forward sustainable initiatives and making them a case study for the rest of the world. And I do believe that the Maritimes can be a case study for how to live sustainably near the water 
for the entire world, whether you're tropical or temperate. And the really fascinating thing is the technology that our company has developed over the last 20 years, it's so translatable region to region. And the cues, funny enough, the cues that set up a coral community are very, very similar to the cues that set up a temperate community, a kelp community. So so small invertebrates and fish and plants, they float around in the water column, almost like pollen on land. And they actually react to light, to smell, to density, uh, salinity, you know, all these phenomenal biological and chemical cues that are present. They actively choose where they want to settle based on these cues that tell them where they're going to find the best home for themselves. And so the fact that these signals are very similar across the Caribbean for corals to the, the, we call them ecosystem engineers that live in temperate ecosystems as well. I'm very, very excited to see what the results of our first project are going to be, because I think it could be huge. You know, if we could replace or substitute or put alongside existing infrastructure projects, put some of this material underwater, we really could turn what's traditionally been a toxic material, you know, concrete can actually burn the scales off of a fish um, because its pH is so high and it does leach hard metals and toxins into the water. You know, if we could kind of buffer that effect by supplying habitat, by supplying a healthy home and turn one of the most destructive marine exercises, which is development, into a conservation opportunity, I think that knowledge that's created in the Maritimes could be exported to the rest of the world and really make us a leader in this type of procedure. Wow, something which is incredible, not just for the world and the environment and the ocean, but also something which will put this region on the world stage. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And we are we are in the perfect position to do that with our local academic partners, with a wonderfully understanding and supportive local government, um, and with some amazing industry partners that in and of themselves are creating their own phenomenal tech, whether that's through sensor development, software development. It really is an f- amazing incubator in the blue technology sphere. That is absolutely incredible. I mean, when will you know, like w- what stage are you at with it? And, and when do you expect to see kind of the, it, it, as and when it's happening? Yeah. So we're putting our technology underwater. It's called Oceanite. It's a uh, conglomerate of minerals and local geological materials that's all held together, bound together uh, with our development nanomaterial science. That is going to be going underwater in the form of 20 artificial reefs that are going to be going in Halifax. And that will be our, you know, our, our proof of concept, our material test. And we're putting that down in October of this year. So, you know, fairly soon within the next couple yeah. of weeks. Um, I'm surprised you've got time for this, given that's a, that's a very close deadline. Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> well, thank you for squeezing us in. Ah, no problem. No problem. And so, you know, um, within within three months to six months, we're going to have some really phenomenal results. These communities grow quickly. And kelp in particular reproduces in December. So we're just squeaking in there before their reproductive season. And so we're going to know very quickly the sort of effect that we can have in Nova Scotia and in the Maritimes. Absolutely incredible. I mean, massive congratulations. And uh, it's one of those just inspiring stories on every possible different level. I can't salute you enough. 
Oh, well, that's very sweet. Thank you. I'm just happy to be along for the ride. You know, if we can, wow. if we can really do something positive to support yeah. local fisheries, to protect people on land and prevent erosion, then why wouldn't we, right? Absolutely. And I mean, as director of, of science and communication for both Intelli Reefs and Real Life Foundation, what is the day to day for you like? And I, I realize obviously right now that, that, that everything that you've just talked about is obviously consuming, I imagine, most hours of the day. But what does a, a, a typical day look like for a world renowned marine biologist? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, I wear a lot of hats being <laughs> co-founder, especially we, you know, we just founded Intelli Reefs Can in July, so there's a lot more administrative work that I've been doing that, you know, historically has not been in my realm. But I've grown to absolutely love the startup community and and learning about business. And so, you know, I write grants, I do research, my <laughs> own research on our structures, as well as you know, coordinate new research projects that we have planned coming out communications pieces and you know doing interviews like this you know you really have to do a little bit of everything when you are a new company just starting up you know we're looking to hire this coming fall uh, and work with students at Dalhousie so there's a little bit of that mentoring aspect as well and just you know (laughs) whatever else I can find time for Um, yeah yeah it's it's busy for sure. You have a career, which is, of course, your passion as well. But what do you do when you're not working? What do you do to kind of, obviously, I mean, I guess I was going to say, what do you do to unwind? But of course, I mean, we've established that essentially being underwater is that unwinding. But what are your other hobbies? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Spending time outside is it's a huge way to relax and reconnect. And, you know, when weeks are really tough, remind you what you do, why you do what you do. Um, So that's a, a massive component of I mean my mental health I also have a a new puppy and so so much of my time and my partner's time has gone towards just keeping her little head straight um Uh. and you know I, I love graphic design and art and so I think staying creative not only is a bit of an outlet but also allows me to be creative in my work and in in the stories that I tell and so I do have a lot of fun with graphic design and helping out different friends do their own science storytelling in graphic design. So I help people with infographics for scientific articles and things along those lines. Very cool. Yeah. And I mean, you're obviously uh, tied up with so many things. What's your you know, five-year plan for the company, 10-year plan? like, and, and what do you hope to see change in that time? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would like to see a fundamental shift in the way that we incentivize conservation within development. So we work in a pretty specific sphere. You know, marine infrastructure is is not something that people talk a lot about unless you're directly involved in marine infrastructure or, you know, marine property development. But if we could change the way that we think about development along a coastline, if we could understand that, you know, the effects that we have are being imposed upon an open system. You know, it's not just the sedimentation that we create at the site. It doesn't just settle and stay there. It actually gets transported and covers, you know, algal communities or transported in the Caribbean on on coral reefs and smothers these corals that are trying to get some sunlight and feed themselves. Hmm. So I really would like to use this business opportunity to fundamentally shift the way that we think about coastal development, whether that is through you know, the actual substrates that we use or offsetting practices that go alongside that work. And no one can do everything. In my belief system, I do lobby against 
emissions. I think that halting emissions, reducing emissions is absolutely fundamental. That's not my particular area of work, but I like to support it where I can. But I think that if we could tackle this one issue of coastal development and make infrastructure actually create homes for the ocean's homeless, we'd be in a much better state. So that's really where we'd like to go. We would like to set up a manufacturing plant in Nova Scotia for export to Europe and abroad within the next five to 10 years, and hopefully increase our influence by having offices elsewhere. We'd love to have an office in Europe. And and so, you know, we do have these business expansion plans that uh, we're working towards and getting a lot of wonderful feedback from the international community about. But, you know, the first five years, I really do think we'll focus on on the Maritimes. First and foremost, we need to have this be a case study to show the rest of the world that this can actually work and that this is a really, really viable way to think about conservation and to to work alongside industry. You know, NGOs and government alone do not have enough conservation funds to do the restorative work that's needed. And so I do see this wonderful new avenue of entrepreneurial conservation that has cropped up in the last, really, I mean, just strongly in the last three years, where those funds are being made up in all kinds of creative ways through incentives for business. And I would I would really like to see the Maritimes be a proof of concept for that. Well, I could not agree more. And what an incredible answer. I mean, so many times when you ask people, they kind of say, oh, well, you know, hopefully more of the same. But you really do. Not only do you have a million things going on right now, you really do have a big plan and <laughs> numerous big plans. And, and I, I honestly, it's really, really incredible. <laughs> oh, thanks. I've never been accused of being unambitious. Um, (laughs) although you know that is is a wonderful trait (laughs) although you know my business partner melody she she's the founder of the american company in telereefs her companies her previous companies developed the tech and uh she is a wonderful example of someone that uses their heart as a compass in business and so really so much of this work to date has been a culmination of her vision and we really do all look to her for that guidance where it's needed. So I've, I've had some amazing, amazing partners along the way um, within the business that have made this work possible. You know, I'm just one small piece, very proud to be bringing it to the Maritimes and adapting the tech for the Maritimes. But we really, you know, we really are a team. Yeah, we'll get there as a team, hopefully. Magical. And of course, the, the newest member of your team, your, your puppy, what breed is your puppy? <laughs> <laughs> she is a stubborn little, they call them cockatoos. I think that's oh, how you sweet. say it. So she's a cocker yes. spaniel shih tzu mix. <laughs> sweet. I, I, I too got a COVID puppy, a, a, a mini doodle. Um, and it was funny that as I could, and I have headphones on, so obviously there's no sound coming out. But as I could hear your puppy in the background, it was my puppy was also barking oh in the background. Goodness. And it was as if they were talking, oh even goodness. though they can't hear What's your puppy's name? Her name is Evie. Evie, beautiful <laughs> yeah. name. Um, mine yours? is Willow. She, oh, Willow. She's uh, Willow, yeah. It's, um, it's a wonderful thing. I, again, I never thought I would ever be able to cope with uh, having a, a puppy in the house, but um, it's been the greatest thing ever. Oh my gosh, they're a massive amount. <laughs> of work i always knew puppies were a lot of work but holy cow yeah. i mean yeah i don't know if i could do it again to be honest with you <laughs> <laughs> I, know. I know and uh, i mean never in a million years did we ever anticipate that we would be carrying around someone's poop quite as much as mm-hmm. we have to mm-hmm. three times um, a day <laughs> yeah made special but, uh, for you but the snuggles make it worth it mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Yeah, I apologize um, for her in the background, but not at all. You know. It's beautiful. Hey, it's all part of the uh, it's all part of the experience for everyone. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> we are all working from home, and that comes with some wonderful little quirks. You get to see a little That's, piece of everyone's life. That is it. That is it. Um, I mean, I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time, especially given how much you have going on. Um, I guess as, as, a, as a final question, I would just love to ask, like for anyone listening who would like to, to support what you're doing or follow what you're doing, uh, how can they do so? Yeah. So anyone that wants to get involved or wants to support us, we're working with our charity in the States, Reef Life Foundation, to raise funds for ongoing research at the site that will be in Halifax. So we're deploying just off the coast of Dartmouth at the Center for Ocean Ventures and Entrepreneurship, which is also called COVE. Um, And so we do have our international charity collaborating with us there on on ongoing research. So certainly, um, if you feel so inclined to support the regrowth of kelp forests with nanotechnology, we do have a fundraiser on the go. But from a fundamental level, you know, just Let's have conversations online. You know, if um, feel free to follow us. We have um, IntelliReefs on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, um, and Reef Life Foundation as well on all those platforms. Um, and we, you know, we just we love it when people amplify our messages and voices and get engaged and just want to talk. Um, we are very much community based, community centered, and so you know, just volunteering your time by saying hi online, sharing things you find are interesting, you know, all those things, while seemingly small, they have a massive impact. And uh, we appreciate that hugely. Incredible. Well, again, I can't thank you enough for your time. And uh, I can't wait to keep following everything you do. And uh, I hope we can uh, do this again. And I look forward to, to meeting in person because it's it's not often that I meet someone that loves the Maritimes uh, as much as I do. And, uh, and uh, you know, you are that person. And, and thank you sincerely for everything you do. Thank you so much. Hopefully next time I'm in St. John, we can we can grab a beer. Say hi That would be person. beautiful. Absolutely. That would be useful. And I have a, a tiny sp- a spot of, of, of private beach opposite so we can sit and be on the water and enjoy that beer while soaking up the thing that we love. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I'll take a stop over. Actually, you know what? I usually fly through St. John uh, for oh, work because nice. it just yeah. happens to be a whole lot cheaper than flying into Halifax. <laughs> yes. And I scoot down and see my family in New Brunswick. So maybe I will stop in on my way in or out in October and say hi. Please do. It's uh, it's an open door policy, and uh, and as you know, the beach is beautiful uh, all twelve months of the year. Even if we're looking at a frozen river, it's still stunning. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Can't wait. Thank you, Emily. But have a great day, and keep doing what you do. Thank you so much. You too. Thank you for listening to Mullinger Meets Canadians. If you like greatness, creativity, being inspired, laughing, or just love Canada as much as I do, then this is the podcast for you. So please do subscribe and review the show now. The show is brought to you by Nova Scotia Business Incorporated. NSBI works towards a strong, thriving and globally competitive Nova Scotia through attracting worldwide investment to create new jobs across the province and working with companies in all communities to be more successful exporters. Visit NovaScotiaBusiness.com to learn more about doing business in Nova Scotia. You can find Emily Higgins on LinkedIn and be sure to follow her on Instagram at Emily the Reefer and learn more about her incredible and impactful work at IntelliReefs.com and RealLifeFoundation.org. Further details can be found on the edit website MaritimeEdit.com and I will see you next time. Podstarter. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.